Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 2. This morning we resume our study of this gospel letter after taking a two-week hiatus, both uh, being blessed by two very different messages. And then ironically, we come back to this study only to set it aside again uh, after this week as we move into the Advent season. And we'll therefore put this aside, picking it up again in January. But this text is also an appropriate text for us to consider even right before we set it aside. Because most scholars would uh, point out to us that these verses, though we're only looking at a couple, verses 23 through 25, serve as a bridge that not only complete the message of John chapter 2, but as a foundational understanding as we move into John chapter 3 at the beginning of the new year. Understanding the importance of the message that is included uh, in the verses we're looking at this morning will help us understand even more clearly the message that God is conveying when we meet uh, a man named Nicodemus uh, in a few weeks. But as we come to this passage this morning, we don't want to simply bridge and finish or anticipate, uh, but also benefit from what Jesus has said, because there is some powerful and important truth for us uh, in this passage. So let's go to our God in prayer that he would speak to us. Father, we do come and we continue in our worship as we listen for your voice to speak to us. Uh, Don't allow us to rest upon our own intellectual capacity or even what we have seen before, but speak to us that we may know what you would reveal and as it pertains to us as individuals, as a church, as your people. Lord, we do pray that you would speak so that our hearts might respond and be shaped and changed. We might die to our sin and brokenness and grow in faith and your righteousness. Bless us in this time, we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless us with it. The story was reported by the Associated Press some time back. Stateline, Seattle. Opening line, a man who tried to siphon gas from a motorhome got a mouthful of sewage instead, according to police reports. (laughs) Seattle police got an early morning call from the owners of an RV parked on a Seattle street. When the officers arrived, they found sewage and what looked like, we'll just call it barf, uh, on the ground. Nearby, they found a man curled up ill underneath a car. Police spokesperson Vanessa Taishi said the man admitted he tried to snitch some gas and he accidentally plugged his hose into the motorhome's sewage tank by mistake. The motorhome owner from Bellingham, Washington, declined to press charges in the incident, saying it was the best laugh he had ever had. (laughs) Why do I share this story? Right before lunch, no. 
It's because of an interesting phrase, an interesting and important phrase that we find in verse 25 here. That is the key to understanding this passage. That is important in understanding ourselves and our relationship to God. And important to understand the passages that went before and that will come after it. In verse 25, we read this statement. Jesus knew what was in man. Which seems to beg the question, what is it that's in man? And the answer, biblically speaking, the short answer, biblically speaking, and metaphorically is, what is in man is pretty much the same stuff that the guy siphoned from the RV tank. The Bible teaches it throughout that it's true for all of us, and it's important that we understand that because it answers questions and it actually points us to hope. It may seem oxymoronic to think that something like this would actually be uh, a point of, of hope, uh, but it is a prelude to receiving the promise that gives us the hope that we uh, desire. And more than that, it's important that we understand that Christianity teaches that that's what's in man. Because some of us, for whatever reasons, we are inclined to believe that somehow this speaks about humanity, but those who are followers of Jesus Christ are somehow exempt, that it speaks of other people and not about us. But the reality of Christianity is that it speaks of this truth about all of us. It's just the revelation of that reality so that it also can be the point toward the remedy. Let's jump into the text so that we can see how this unfolds in this uh, very short and, and simple passage. So we look at first in verse 23. We'll just call this, if we're going to head it, uh, just people believed. And we read in verse 23, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, apparently, according to this text, that while Jesus was in Jerusalem during that time, he was performing a series of miracles, things that were catching people's attention. People were impressed by it. People began to ask questions. People began wondering, who is this guy? And impressed by the answer that they came up with and seems to be a consensus of opinion of people, we're told that they believed in him. We're not told what miracles Jesus performed while he was there. In fact, up to this point, there's only one miracle that John has recorded for us, and that was the miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana, which wasn't even in Jerusalem. So that miracle wasn't even the one that's in consideration that was impressing people. It is possible that they may have heard of it, but they were not present. Most of the people were not present. There was other things that Jesus was doing, reminding us that Jesus has done, God has done far more than we are aware but what seems to be key in this passage that stands out is people believed in his name. And so when we look at the passage as a whole and we hear that, it may cause attention for those of us who are serious students of this word. In other words, that we don't just read it and let it gloss over and, and not give any thought to it. Because we read they believed in his name and yet we see a consequence that doesn't seem to be a positive one. There's no judgment in this passage. There's no condemnation in this passage. There's no commentary, really, about their belief. John just kind of lays it out as a, as a straight fact. 
And because we recognize that we're saved, they believe, which seems to be the whole point of the letter. John says so in the first chapter. He writes this so people would believe in the name of Jesus so they can experience all the promises of God in all of eternity. And these people were believing, and yet we're left with the understanding that there was something that is lacking there. Some may wonder if there's kind of a funny word in here from the Greek that says, yeah, they believe, but it wasn't like the real belief. For those of you who are wondering that, there is no trick word here in the Greek. Believe, the phrase, is exactly the same as John says is his objective in the first part. People were impressed. People believed. The passage doesn't tell us that they were pretending to believe or anything like that. They truly were believing. Consider what a couple of Bible scholars, one from our generation, another from uh, an age gone by. A man named Herman Ritterboss says this, they believed Jesus was a man sent from God, expressing the conviction of many. Even if at the same time, it's not, it, it is clear not all believing and believing in his name can be equated with the faith of John 1.12. And so what Ritterboss is saying is they believed. It's the same word, the same phrase. We know there's something that is lacking, but what we're told is the objective and the basis of our relationship with God, they same word here. They were believing. J.C. Ryle, who was a bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century, elaborates on it in another way that gives us a little more insight as to the people and their mindset. He says, they were astonished at the miracles which they saw Jesus work. They were even convinced that he was the Messiah, whom they had long expected. But they were not disciples. They were not converted they were not Christians. And that leaves us with this, this tension. If they believe, then what's the difference between they believed, they believed in his name, and they were not Christians? We need to consider that what was going on here is people were very impressed. They saw the power. They considered their own circumstance. They listened to his teaching, and again, they were impressed. Many of them concluded that he was not only a man sent from God, but he was the Messiah promised from God. And who would be a better political leader than somebody who has the power to perform miracles and to provide whatever it is that we are in need and has the potency to take on whatever the power structures in, social, in our society are? and the boldness to be able to confront even those who are leaders. And so they decided this must be the Messiah that is promised. He is doing everything that we need. We will follow him. We will even, as we read later, they're even willing to enthrone him because they believed in the power and the miracles and what good that would do for them. We're going to leave that subject for a second because that's really all this particular text tells us about their belief. And the only reason we know that there's something inadequate there is because the next line tells us, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. And here there is a play on words in the Greek. Essentially, we would say this is they believed in him he didn't believe in them. 
which moves us on to the next part, which is what we see about Jesus. And the reason he didn't believe in them, we would just summarize this way, because Jesus knew all people. That's what the passage tells us. So we look at verses 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so Jesus knew what was characteristic of every person that was there. Now, the passage is not saying that he is like a politician had gone out and shaken everyone's hand and that he was personally acquainted with everybody and knew all of their stories, uh, having become friends or any interpersonal relationship. But he didn't need anybody to tell him about their own stories. And he didn't need anybody to tell him about humanity is what this passage is telling us. It's saying to us that Jesus knew omnisciently what was in every human heart. He had that ability. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the writer uh, Walker Percy. One of his books called Love and Ruins that he uh, published in early 1971 reflects a dystopian society that kind of is an extreme example of the 60s or the 60s put on steroids. So it's summarized in this way, uh, Percy, the main uh, focus on the main character, uh, a psychiatrist named uh, Dr. Thomas Moore. And the society in this place, according as it summarizes this, over time the U.S. had become progressively more fragmented between left and right, black and white, as social trends ran to illogical extremes, which makes the book somewhat timely. Society began to come apart at the seams, and no one seemed to care, and no one except Dr. Moore seemed to notice. Dr. Moore, who referred to himself as a lapsed Catholic alcoholic womanizer, who despite those characteristics was also a genius in the book, and he invented a machine that he called an ontological lapsometer. And the ontological lapsometer is something like a stethoscope that could be placed on the heart of every individual and it would diagnose what was wrong inside of them, not in a biological sense, but from a spiritual, moral, what is the corruption that is in them and how can it be addressed. It's a tool that many wish that we would have available to us today. But the reality is we don't need one because we are told in the scriptures of one without the ontological lapsometer was able to know in the heart of every person. And he's revealed what's in the heart of every person. Jesus knew every man. He knew what was in the heart of every man. He knew what's the heart of all of humanity. And what is it that Jesus sees in the heart of all of humanity? Recognizing that all of scripture is God-breathed and all of it is spoken in his reflection of Jesus Christ, we can take just a couple of examples. I would just say first we would see that through the prophet Jeremiah, Jesus our Lord spoke and told us that he sees in every human heart deceit. In Jeremiah 17.9, we're told the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You see, the reason the heart is deceitful is because of the sewage that has infected the soul of all of humanity. It's just not a faithful guide. Our feelings are not the same as facts. And it's important that we understand that. And even when we are trying 
desperately to deal with the facts, we need to realize that our feelings at times deceive us. Sometimes it tells us that we are far better than we really are. At other times it tells us that we are far worse than we really are. And occasionally it will tell us something that is approximate to the truth. But it is so scattered, according to Jeremiah's statement, that it is unreliable. In other words, there is no compensating for it. We know sometimes where things don't work. Maybe you have a, a, a watch that you just, or a clock in your car hasn't been set since the time change. You know that it's not actually an hour later, and you just kind of adjust mentally for it. Or if you've gone golfing with me, you might have noticed that I have this tendency to hit the ball hard and far and somehow way over there, especially if I'm wanting to go there. But because I know I have that tendency, what I'll do it sometimes, especially after that trend seems to be proving itself, is I will aim over there <laughs> so that hopefully the ball will go here. But those of you who have played for me, with me realize that, that somehow is not what happens because when I aim over there, I no longer slice, I now hook, and the ball ends up over there. <laughs> and so I am not able to compensate for my deficiencies because my swing is so unreliable that it is a constant act of mercy for the person to play with me, prayer, and it is a, a, a humbling experience for all who are on the course nearby. Our hearts are very much the same way. We think, okay, well, we know how we're broken, so I'll fix it going this way, but the problem is our hearts are so unstable, they are so corrupt, they are so undependable, they deceive us. And if we are deceived, then our lives then become deceit to the people who are around because we are no longer living our life as a presentation of what is real. That's one of the things that takes place in us. And there's a reason that that's what's in all of us is because the other thing that Jesus sees within us simply stated according to the biblical teaching is depravity. What you need to do is read the first part of Romans and you recognize what's true for all of humanity, that we are, we are corrupt and we have been since our birth. In fact, we were as a people even before our birth, going back to our very first parents. Theologians refer to this as total depravity, meaning that every aspect of our personality, every aspect of our being is somehow corrupted and unreliable and deceitful and full of the sewage that is causing our feelings, emotions to be unreliable gauges of reality in the world or even within ourselves. Now it's important that we understand that it's not the way that it always was. That wasn't the way that man was created. That brought, was brought home to me, I think, uh, a couple of years ago. I, I bought a book written by a, uh, an Episcopalian priestess from Nashville. Before you threaten charges and leave on me, if that's not appropriate, she and I went to high school together, and so I was intrigued with what she would write. And she's been used powerfully in a number of ways in mercy ministries throughout Nashville, throughout the country, particularly with women who have been abandoned and, uh, and scarred and who have found themselves in prostitution, just deliverance is an amazing work that she's done. And so therefore she is writing and people are reading what she's writing. In the first chapter of one of the books that I picked up, she started talking about original righteousness. And that phrase began to resonate with me. Now, what I mean by it and what she means by it are different things. But when she was lamenting the loss of the understanding of original righteousness, I was agreeing, not 
as she's defining it, but the very truth. And I think it's particularly true of us who are in the Reformed tradition who focus so much on the issue of our depravity that we lose sight of the glory of the way that God has created us in the first place. Because God created our first parents perfect, holy, and in perfect relationship with him. And yet they blew it. And just as every one of us has some trait passed on from our parents or our grandparents or our ancestors, whether they come through the DNA and the physical characteristics or the society or the social status in which you were born into, we all inherited that failure of our first parents, which led to every aspect called sin, every aspect of our personalities being corrupted. We were made glorious, and that has not gone away. It's just been vandalized. If somebody was to go paint a mustache on the Mona Lisa, it doesn't do away with the beauty of the original painting. It just distorts it. And that's the reality of who we are. But we are distorted not only as in the outside, but inside as well. And then we live each day in that reality and validating it. And so for those who don't like the whole idea of original sin, in one sense, it really doesn't matter unless you've lived your life perfectly from birth anyway. Original sin just explains the reality of our condition and why we're all full of sewage in every aspect of our being. But it's important to understand how God created us because that's also how he has promised to make us again. We also need to understand that when we talk about total depravity in the reform circles, we throw that around. It doesn't mean that every person is bad as they could be. It just means we're all corrupted in every aspect of our personality and some of you are better than others. Most of you are better than me. simply means we could be worse and sometimes we do get worse but the scripture is very clear that because of the effect of sin it has impacted every one of us in the short way metaphorically speaking is that when Jesus looks into the heart of all of humanity he sees the garbage and it is true of every single person I love the way that Herman Melville puts it in Moby Dick because in Moby Dick, he writes this, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we all are somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. And what is true for Presbyterians and pagans is also true for conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans, men and women, black and white, Hispanic and Asian, and whatever else may be identifying factors of us. Every one of us is desperately cracked about the head. Every one of us is full of, and you can fill in the word yourself if you're tired of hearing sewage. But this explains why Jesus seeing man didn't entrust himself to us there's a problem. And Jesus knew it. But even these words are something we also need to see about Jesus that is vitally important as well. It's very subtle, but it's also very important, even in profound. Because, you know, in Jewish understanding, God knows people. And not just their behavior. He's not Santa Claus, so he knows whether you've been good or bad. He knows what's in your heart. We're told that he judges not just our behavior, but he judges our motives as well, which if we think about that would be a very unnerving thing. Because how many of us do the right thing because peer pressure tells us we ought to? Because it's the way to succeed. 
and not because it's right and not because it would give honor and glory to God. But God judges the heart because he is aware he knows all. And so when John is saying that Jesus knew what is in man, he in a very subtle way, in a way that wouldn't be missed by the early readers of this, is declaring that Jesus, knowing what is in you and in me, is therefore God. And he is evaluating our hearts. He is judging us according to our motives. And he is aware that we come short and that's why he's not giving himself over to people. But we still have this tension that needs to be resolved from this passage. Because while it might be important to understand these truths, they're not particularly helpful or hopeful unless we understand some other aspects that we do see here within its context. And what we see ultimately, I think, is the significance of the gospel itself as being central to our faith and to our life and into our relationship uh, with our God. Because remember, the people believed God, uh, Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. There's no reason to believe that there was any lack of sincerity in their faith. They had watched the signs that he had performed, judged him to be a man from God, a man of God, and a promised of the Messiah. And they were basing their faith upon that, but there was still something that is lacking. And we need to understand that because many of us and many people filling pews in the churches today across the country are plagued by that same problem because they have seen the power of Jesus in the page of the scripture and want God to be performing tricks on their behalf simply to provide for them. And they miss the foundational and essential and central message that reconciles us to God, that fulfills the promise for which Jesus had come. See, they were focused so much on the signs that he was performing that they neglected a sign that he did not perform, but that he had pointed to in the passages right before this. Remember when we looked at the passage of Jesus in the temple courtyards during the Passover weeks or during this week, it was one of the things that didn't make people happy about him. He came in and he turned over the temple to tables and he drove out the people that were uh, doing the banking and the people came up and said, by what authority are you doing this? In other words, who gave you permission to do this? Show us a sign so that we can believe that you have the right to do this. And Jesus said, I'm not going to show you a sign, but I will give you a sign that you can be looking out for. Tear down this temple, and in three days it will be raised up again. And the people scoffed, this is ridiculous, and went on. So look, it's taken 66 years to renovate it to this point, and you're going to do something in three days? But Jesus was giving them a sign. It is the central sign. It is the ultimate sign. It is the important sign. It is the foundational sign that every one of us needs to turn our attention to and determine whether we believe it or don't believe it because it's that sign alone that is the basis of our relationship with God. Through that sign alone and our faith, whether we are forgiven of our sin, cleansed from all unrighteousness, established as being right, granted the righteousness of Christ, or we follow his teachings, discipline ourselves to be obedient, consider ourselves good people, and nevertheless, one day we'll hear from Jesus, I never knew you. And that sign is the temple of his body having been torn down and the res resurrected three days later. See, these people were focusing on all the power and all the neat tricks and all the neat things that God can do, but they lost sight of the necessity that we have of not a teacher-leader 
but a redeemer king. And if we lose sight of that, we can be as religious and as good as we want, but we are still left with the reality of the sewage that is in our soul, and there is nothing that will clean it out. We may be cleaned up on the outside, just like your septic tank that you just bought new, but I don't want to have lunch on the inside. And that's the reality that this passage is pointing to us. We need to be aware not only of the centrality, but the power of the message of the gospel because the gospel is about what Jesus has done, not what we're supposed to do. And apart from understanding that, and these people sincerely believing, but didn't yet understand. It's important we understand that in this passage, again, there's no judgment on these people. There's no condemnation on these people. And Jesus didn't give up on these people, but what is significant is not whether Jesus gave up on them, but that he gave himself up for us all. Jack Miller, who was a minister and theologian a generation ago, says the gospel gives us hope. But he also said that the gospel insults us before it dazzles us. In other words, the bad news of the gospel is you're full of it, and so am I. But it's the awareness of that condition that leads us to be aware of our need and therefore deal with whether we needed a redeemer, one who would give his life for us or not. And the gospel, therefore, is the only message, the only message that both explains the human condition and the societies that we see around us, including the recent and ongoing political season, and gives us hope. There are the philosophies that can explain all of the garbage, but because they are so finalistic, uh, they don't give us any hope. They just explain this is the way people are, and that's it. There are others that are optimistic, and they will point to hope. They are so shallow that they don't deal with the reality or explain anything. But the gospel that insults us says, you and I are full of it, as is every person in the world. And yet, God did not give up on us, but he gave himself up for, for us all. And in that, we have hope, foundation, power, and renewal. 